Peace be with you. So we are in a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and um, we are into this section, chapters 5 through 7, uh, and it's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we are now into the meat of this sermon, and we are not rushing through it. Uh, part, part of the reason why we're not rushing through it, as some of you know this, is that back in 2020, when the world was burning down in every single place you looked, um, it seemed to me that, it, that, the, that the church in general had forgotten the Sermon on the Mount. That it was almost like, you know, I, th- there are three chapters where Jesus has a lot to say about how to navigate the world, and it doesn't feel like any of this is on display uh, in, in, in the church uh, right now. And um, so it, it, it took a while, but the idea of like getting to a study of the Gospel of Matthew uh, kind of became something where it's like, man, we, we, we need to do that. And so now we've finally gotten to the study of the, of the Gospel of Matthew, and so we're not going to rush through these three chapters that are uh, these great three chapters that have been these, this uh, incredible resource to the people of God for, for 2,000 years. It has, it has uh, in large part, given a map for how to, to navigate the complicated world in which we find ourselves. And so um, we are not, uh, we, we're, we're taking our time. And so uh, if you see in your bulletin, this is uh, Matthew part 23, and we're only in chapter 5, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a while. We're going to be here for a while. Um, but, but what's happening in this part of the sermon uh, is in, in verse 17 of chapter 5, Jesus clarifies something, and he says, if you thought I came to throw out the Old Testament, you misunderstand what I'm here to do. I'm not throwing out the Old Testament. I'm not abolishing it. But I'm also not just going to give it like, uh, yeah, let, let, like the Old Testament's good. It, he, he wants to do, to do something with it. He actually says, I want to fulfill it. He wants to turn the lights on. He wants to take the Old Testament and be like, it's true. Now let me show you the riches of it. Let me show you that it goes deeper and farther and it has more to offer uh, than any Jew in the first century would have been able to guess. And so Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He loves the Old Testament, but he's also saying that our understanding of it is so partial. And so he wants to fulfill it. He wants to you know, flesh it out, make it become full color. And so that's, that's what he's doing. As we've been uh, in these verses, then verse 21 and forward, um, he uses this phrase, you have heard that it was said. And he uses it a number of times. He uses it in verse 21, verse 27, verse 31, uh, verse 37, verse 33. So there's a number of times here where he's using this phrase. And why that's interesting is that what he doesn't say is he doesn't say it is written. When Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, he usually says it is written. But here he says, you've heard that it was said. And so what Jesus is helping us realize is he is taking these cultural statements that the religious leaders have kind of held on to or sunk their teeth into. And they've said, this is, this is the way it is. This is what is true. Uh, you should not murder your brother. And Jesus is holding up that statement. He's saying, yeah, yes, um, you, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder. But let, let me tell you where, where the roots of that actually go. They go all the way down into, the, into, the, into your heart. And when you have anger in your heart, that, that is under that same umbrella of murder, that you're murdering someone in your heart. And then he says, or insults, you're, you're murdering them with your words. And so Jesus' point is, yeah, yes, I understand that culturally you're agreeing that you shouldn't murder anyone. And that's right. Don't murder people. But do, do you know that there's problems all the way down? That if you just attack someone but don't kill them, like that's still a problem. If you don't physically attack them but attack them with your words, like that's a problem. And even if you don't even act on it with audible sound, 
The, the sin of your heart, the anger of your heart is a problem. And then last week, we saw him do this with adultery. And he held up adultery. And it's like, yes, don't, don't commit adultery. Don't, don't sleep around in, in your marriage. And that's, that's good. But let me tell you how far this goes down. It goes so far that, yes, don't, don't, don't do that. But then don't do anything with, with your eyes. Don't, don't look lustfully. And even if you don't look lustfully, don't, don't, don't dwell on lustful thoughts in your heart. And so Jesus is saying that the sin that he wants to get to is often the sin that we can't really see. The sins that we like to shoot at are the sins that everybody can see. And so, and so largely, it's so that we can be like, I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't murder. I don't commit adultery. And Jesus is like, well, that, if you don't, like, that's good. But let me just tell you, there's, there's problems all the way down. And so Jesus is inviting us to realize that maybe the cultural statements, you have heard that it was said, aren't really what God is after. They're not going deep enough. They're not, they're not digging into the heart the way that Jesus wants them to and wants us to. And what Jesus goes on to say is that he wants us to have a greater righteousness than the righteousness of the religious leaders. He wants us to have a whole person righteousness, a righteousness that's not just external, but that is also internal. And that word's important, also internal. He's not saying that your external doesn't matter. He's just saying that God's design is that, the, it, that it flows from the inside out, that your heart is actually being transformed, not just you, 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 know, you manage what bad things you do. He says, don't, yeah, don't, don't do those things, but there's a, big, there's a bigger problem. So today we are in part 23, as I said. Before I go any further... Some of you may have broken out in a little bit of a cold sweat when you heard the scripture read just a moment ago. Um, and I just, I want to say, like, this, this is a tender subject. Uh, I recognize that, that um, I mean, I've, I've been a, a lead pastor at, at this church for 17 years, which means that I've sat um, in, in, in rooms with uh, some of you and a, and a lot of people uh, over, over the years. And I, I really do recognize that being in an unhappy marriage is extremely painful. I just recently had a friend text me, doesn't live in Traverse City, and he said, you know, I used to think that being alone was the worst thing in the world. It's not. It's being in a marriage where you shouldn't be alone and feeling like you're alone. The, the, the pain of marriage can be intense, and an unhappy marriage can be extremely painful. Being in a marital relationship that's full of anger or bitterness or mistreatment when marriage is meant to be full of love and forgiveness and care, is confusing, it's tragic. So I don't engage this passage uh, as though it is easy. Um, one of the commentaries that I use throughout this series is by John Stott, who's no longer living, but he was kind of like the evangelical pope for a little while. In, in his commentary, he, he, he point blank says, like, I, I, I want to be honest with you, like, I write this commentary with trepidation because I realize how tender these verses are, they hit really, really close to home for a lot of us, not just some of us, a lot of us. Uh, the, the issue of divorce has been part of the journey, whether it's our own divorce or the divorce of a parent or the divorce of a child. Uh, these, are, these are things that are near and dear to our heart. Um, and so I don't intend to preach, uh, in my, by God's grace, I do not intend to preach this with a lack of, of tenderness. My prayer is that I actually present to you the sense of what Jesus is saying, on this issue, and that like every other week, we are both challenged, uh, because I think that that's what Jesus wants to do. Uh, we say here a lot um, that we think that the Bible is going to step on our toes, 
Like we come in here anticipating the fact that the Bible is going to step on our toes. Um, and so we're going to be challenged, but we're also, by God's grace, going to be comforted. So let's, uh, let's take a look. I want, I want to spend uh, the first point here on, on the context of what Jesus is, uh, uh, the context in which Jesus is addressing this. Um, and so th- this, this, what you see in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, is a very, very compact statement about a very, very complex issue. And a lot of commentaries reach to Matthew chapter 19, and they say it is probably pretty important that we pair what Jesus says in verses 31 and 32 of chapter 5 with what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. And so if you have your Bible open, feel free to put your finger in there and kind of flip back and forth between Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19, because in Matthew chapter 19, we at least get a little bit of commentary. So the, the commentary, uh, uh, Bible scholars believe that, that Matthew is giving us just a snippet here, that Jesus had to have said more about this, uh, that this, this would seem so kind of out of place and rapid fire for him to just say those two verses. And so Matthew includes it in the Sermon on the Mount because it's so important. But then later in his gospel, he gives us a little bit of commentary. And so I'm going to reach into Matthew chapter 19 and bring that to bear uh, on these two verses because they, do- they, they, they dovetail. Uh, Jesus is, he says basically the same thing in chapter 19 with just more, more context. So here's the, here's the cultural situation for the, first century, for the first century Jew. There were rival rabbis. I know, this sounds exciting, doesn't it? There, there were rival rabbis who had very different views on this text in the Old Testament from Deuteronomy 24. And in Deuteronomy 24, uh, we, the, the law references the fact that a, a certificate of divorce can be given, that divorce can happen. And so, like we do today, we take the Bible and we're wrestling with it and commentaries are being written about it all the time. Well, the, the, the Jewish people did this. They, they had their Hebrew Bible and they wrestled with all of these texts and they wrote and wrote and wrote. And you can find these, uh, not, not all of them, but you can find many of these remnants where the Jewish people are trying to figure out what does Deuteronomy 24 mean? What, is it, what does it mean that you can offer this certificate of, of divorce? And, and, and what, what is referenced there is that a, a certificate of divorce can be given for, for if, if it's, it's talking from the male to the female. But the idea is that if anything unseemly or it could be translated indecent is done, then the husband can give a bill of divorce, a, a certificate of divorce. Well, these two dueling rabbis, um, they had different opinions on what Deuteronomy 24 meant. Uh, Rabbi Shammai What his view was, was maybe what would be considered the conservative view or the very strict view of Deuteronomy 24. And his conclusion was that the unseemly or indecent offense was sexual unfaithfulness. It was physical adultery. And that was it. That, that's, that's what you could, you could yeah, that, that would justify your divorce if your spouse had physically cheated on you. Rabbi Hillel he had the, what you might consider the progressive view. And his view was, no, no, like that's, that's kind of like a big bucket. That there's this, this general category of unseemly. And you, you might think that this is funny, um, but remember the culture we live in right now. He, he, he said that anything unseemly, so that would qualify, literally, it would be unseemly. For example, if your wife was not a good cook, 
that would be considered unseemly, and you could literally offer her a certificate of divorce. Uh, if you lost um, physical attraction for her, and you could, you could claim, like, you know, whatever, age or whatever, like, that would be unseemly, and you could grant her, um, give her a certificate of divorce. So Rabbi Halil was like, there's basically any reason is okay. You just have to be able to somehow cram it into this little idea of unseemly, but unseemly is a really big tent. And so divorce is very open. That, that is an option pretty much for everybody. The majority of Bible scholars believe that this looser understanding, Rabbi Halil, that that was the majority view. And it seems as if Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees lead to the fact that the Pharisees agreed with Rabbi Halil. Now, you see, there's a, a huge benefit here for, for anyone who wants to agree with Rabbi Halil. Because what, what, what is Rabbi Halil doing? He's not denying the Bible in his mind. See, he's, he's actually taking the scripture and saying, no, no, like you can be faithful to God and observe this uh, Deuteronomy, uh, this law in Deuteronomy in, in this way. And so the Pharisees, who are very committed to observing the law, were, were, uh, saw this opportunity or saw, saw this, this translation, this understanding, this loose understanding, and thought, okay, like we, we can be in the clear and we can, uh, we can get, uh, get divorced for anything un unseemly. So that's the situation. You got some people siding with Rabbi Shammai. You got some people uh, siding with Rabbi Halil. And then Jesus shows up. And there's these uh, two factions. And I'm not trying to guess what the percentages were, but those factions existed in that current cultural moment in the first century. And Jesus shows up into those tensions. You know, how is Jesus going to address these tensions. How does he respond? Well, I got four points today, so just heads up. Se second point is, how does Jesus respond? Part one. While the culture is focused on the grounds of divorce, so wh where's the line? Where can I, you know, what, what, what justifies my divorce? Jesus is focused on the essence of marriage. If you go to chapter 19, it's exactly what Jesus does. They ask him about divorce, but before Jesus talks about divorce, he wants to talk about marriage. And it's almost like he's saying, before we talk about the perimeter, before we talk about where the line is, let's talk about the essence. Let's talk about the heart of this idea. Let's make sure that we're on the same page with what marriage even is before we talk about dissolving it. It's like Jesus is saying, we got to get this right. And so when Jesus in chapter 19, what he does is he reaches all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And he says, let me tell you about what, what it was, how we got this. You want to know how we got marriage? Here's how we got marriage. In the beginning, God created a man and a woman. And then he said this, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And so Jesus says, I, I can tell you the origins of marriage. It was, it, was, it was this idea that God gave in the very early chapters of the Bible. One man, one woman, together forever, they become, you know, two become one. They become one flesh. See, one of the reasons why uh, our culture specifically has so many problems with marriage is that we think marriage is our idea. You know, the Supreme Court of the United States of America confirmed that a few years ago. That there's a definition that they felt like they could, that they could affirm. That there's this alternate definition that they could uh, kind of adjust or tweak. They could play with it and reinterpret it. 
And we kind of like that. That's a little bit in line with our cultural disposition. An institution, yes, but an institution that we can modify, an institution that we can tweak. And marriage is an institution, but it's not like most institutions. It's not institutions like schools or, 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 or um, uh, you know, government thing. This is an institution that was not created by humans. Marriage is a divine idea that was created and designed by God as a covenant. This means that we can't fiddle with it like we want to. And, and, and look, if you're in Matthew chapter 19, look at verse 6. Because what Jesus says in verse 6 is, uh, so they shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. He uses that word separate. The other passages use this idea that a man should hold fast to his wife. And he should, uh, some versions say that he should cleave to his wife. And so we get these ideas of intense union. And those ideas of hold fast or cleave, that, that, that's the sense of, of, of uniting together. And in the Old Testament, the word that's used for hold fast or for cleave is used in other places when covenants are being discussed. So one of the reasons why Christians have referred to marriage as, as a covenant is because when God described what marriage was, he used the word that's used for covenants. Hold fast, cleave. You are coming together. You are, two are becoming one. So marriage is a covenant, but in our current moment, we need to ask the question of like, what is a covenant? And that's a really good question. Uh, some of you maybe have read the book, The Meaning of Marriage, and it's, it's on our book wall, uh, but it's authored by Tim and uh, Kathy Keller. Uh, and this is, this is a quote from Tim, not directly from the book, but they, they address this in the book. And this is what Tim Keller says. A covenant is a relationship, but it's a relationship more loving and intimate than a merely legal relationship. Yet, it's more binding and enduring and accountable than a merely personal relationship. The covenant is a stunning blend of law and love. He goes on. He says, it is stunning because it's a personal relationship made more loving and intimate because it's legal. Through voluntary, mutual, binding promises and vows to be loving and to be faithful no matter what the circumstances. So uh, John Piper one time, a, a pastor who used to pastor in, in, in Minneapolis, he, he said, you know, if, if, you know, ideally in your marriage, your, your love sustains your vows. You know, you make all these promises to your spouse, and it's like, you know, on wedding day, it's like richer or poorer, health, you know, sickness and health, all of it. I'm, I'm you know, I'm all, I'm all yours. And like our love, you know, you come home from work, and it's just like bliss. And you, you walk in, and you're, you know, everybody's glad to see everybody, and it's just, everything's so delightful. And it's like, it's easy to be all in. He says your love sustains your vows. He's like, but if you've been married long enough, here's what you're going to realize that there are going to be significant stretches of your marriage where your vows sustain your love. Where the fact that you stay in there because you made the promise, it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel good. It's not bliss. But you hang in there because you made the promise. That, that's covenant thinking. Covenant thinking is saying it's absolutely a personal relationship. It's absolutely a personal relationship. But guess what? It's also legal. So when you hear in our culture people saying things like, 
we don't need a piece of paper. Why, why do we need to go get a piece of paper? Why, why, do, why, you know, why do we have to have the government sign off on this? Listen, it's not about the government signing off on it. It's about having the legal side of the covenant be a legitimate part of your relationship. It's personal and it's legal. And when you bring those two things together, you get the biblical idea of covenant. It's not a contract. It's not a contract. You know, Dave Lamb said to me one time about, uh, about uh, wedding vows. He said, you know, what I love about wedding vows is that, um, you know, when you buy a cell phone or get, you know, go, go get a cell phone contract, you get pages and pages and pages of small print, little itty bitty print everywhere. And it's all of these ways in which Verizon is saying, this lets us out. <laughs> if you screw up, we're out. What, what are wedding vows? Wedding vows, there's no small print. Like traditional historic wedding vows are like you, all of me, all of me for all of you. No small print. There's no escape, you know, escape clauses. There's no small print. It's, it's all in, and yet it's, it's legal. And what Tim Keller and John Piper, what, what, what they're communicating is this idea that it actually becomes more, it becomes richer than you could imagine. This idea is as deep as it gets. That's a covenant. See, the problem is that in our modern society, we don't really have a category for this. Because our modern society is ordered all around our personal happiness. In, in, our, in our modern society, your individual happiness, your individual fulfillment, uh, your, your rights, those are the absolutes. Th those are the, the things that cannot be impeached upon. And then everything else is a means to that end. So every other relationship we've got, the question we ask ourselves in this current cultural moment is, is that making me happy? Is that fulfilling me? And so what we're looking at all of our relationships and treating them as is much more of a contract. What we're looking at people is saying this, I'll be what I should be as long as you are what you should be. And if you don't, I'm out. But in a covenant, two people look at each other and they say this, I will be what I should be whether you are being what you should be or not. That's covenant language. Now, can you see how scary that is? That's scary. Maybe your marriage is working out and that doesn't sound so scary. But for a single person sitting here, that might sound really scary. For somebody whose marriage is, 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 who's been through the hard parts of marriage, that might sound really scary. It's scary because it only works if both people in, the, in a covenant say that. It's a covenant relationship, but both have to say it. Both have to say, I will be what I should be, even if you're not what you should be. That, that's how it works, is when both join in the covenant. So that's the essence and the intensity of God's design for marriage. Marriage is the most intense human relationship. And so as Jesus answers this question, I know he doesn't give us all of this in Matthew chapter 5, but he does in Matthew chapter 19. And I think it's important to recognize that when Jesus answers the question, he doesn't fall for their, their trap right off the bat. It's like, He's like, you want to talk about divorce? I'm talking about marriage. Because we need to know what we're talking about. We need to know what we're talking about, this covenant that is the most intense human relationship that could ever exist. That's what we're talking about, okay? That's his first response. Now, what is, what is his second response? His second response, so you know, marriage is God's idea. It's good. But Jesus then does have something to say about divorce. Now, another little side note, you know, the, the church in general has not handled divorce real well. 
On the one hand, in more conservative churches, more the circle I grew up in, um, churches have often given the impression that you should stay in your marriage no matter what. That there are no excuses, uh, you know, divorce shouldn't be part of your, your vocabulary, and you should stay no matter what. And this, you know, there, may, there might be some intentions there that are positive, but this can be terribly harmful advice. And in some cases, this kind of advice has enabled abuse and pretty severe neglect. On the other hand, saying nothing about divorce is almost equally harmful. And there's a lot of churches in the, in, in the United States of America who have gone silent on divorce for the last couple generations. As divorce numbers climbed, it became more complicated for churches to talk about divorce. And look, I feel it. I, I feel the complexities right now, standing in front of you. I understand why that would be a subject that we might want to avoid. But listen, divorce is not nothing. It's not nothing. And I think that letting Jesus answer that question by starting with marriage helps us realize why divorce is not nothing. And the church being silent on it has harmed the church's credibility on a number of fronts. I have a friend who his dad had cheated on his mom multiple times, and his mom then divorced his dad, and the church kicked her out because she divorced her husband, and he, they allowed his dad to stay. Now, his experience was my dad had a successful business and was very wealthy, and the church had reasons to let him stay. Maybe that was it. Maybe, maybe there were other reasons. I don't know. But that, that kind of stuff where they say nothing or they, they, they handle it so poorly. And then you fast forward a couple decades and all of a sudden same-sex marriage is, is, is legal in our country. And Christians are all up in arms, all up in arms about the sanctity of marriage and about the importance of marriage. And we have a lot of millennials sitting out there saying, oh, oh, now, now, now marriage is sacred. Now there's sanctity to marriage. You didn't do that when my parents were getting divorced. You didn't care to step in in that situation, and you let all of that fall on me and my siblings. And we have to live with that all the, you know, our whole lives. The church did nothing, sat back and watched it happen. And now you want to kind of take the moral high ground and say we're the ones who care about marriage? Like, can, can you see how this is a, this is a problem? So it's, it's it, you know, the, the, the advice to just stay no matter what is, is, is it can be harmful. The idea of being silent on it and turning a blind eye, you know, divorce is not nothing. So if I could just say that one of the things that makes this subject divorce so tender is that it is so much more public than most of the other things that he's addressing, that Jesus addresses in this sermon. You know, think about it. Two weeks ago, we talked about the anger of our heart. We all stuff it. I bet you some of you cussed out somebody in your car on the way here. It's like, you don't have to wear that on your sleeve. No, nobody knows about that except for maybe your spouse and your kids. What, what about lust we talked about last week? You know, very, very few people probably know your search history on your computer. Maybe nobody knows it at all. That, that, those are sins that we can hide. D divorce is a sin that it, 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 is, it, is, it is very difficult to hide. It is a very public sin, which makes it so complicated for those who are involved. It is often painfully public. So it is tender, but I do ask you to try to hang with me here as we see what Jesus has to say about divorce. So what does Jesus tell us about divorce? Here's what he's, he's, he's saying. Divorce 
is a painful amputation. When Jesus uses that language and he says, here's what divorce is. There are no longer two, but they are now one flesh. So two have become one. And then he says, what, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate or let no man pull apart. That, that language, that idea of, of pulling apart is this is idea of, 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 a, uh, um, of an amputation, of something being cut off. So, so getting a divorce is not like taking your shirt off. Getting a, getting a divorce is more like cutting your arm off. The, the severity of it remains with you. There's an idea that, that drifts around in our culture uh, that divorce isn't that big of a deal. And if we stay amicable and we you know, share the kids evenly, like we can somehow overcome that. But the stats are so clear. And I actually, I think we should stop lying to ourselves about the realities of divorce in our culture. By God's grace, we don't take the full brunt of it sometimes. Uh, but the, the statistics are really clear that divorce has a, a significant impact on all parties. The, the, the husband, the wife, and the children. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says the aftermath of divorce complicates your future relationships. Did you notice, if you heard those verses read, verses 31 and 32, especially verse 32, he says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I mean, he's saying, listen, the ripple effects of this go way beyond just the two of you. You are making the future relationships with other people extremely complicated. Divorce is not nothing. In Micah chapter 2, there's a verse that is, I admit has been weaponized in unhelpful ways. But in Micah chapter 2, verse 16, we are told that God hates divorce. God hates divorce. But I would invite you to recognize that if you read the entire chapter, what God is saying is almost like, I'm, I'm brokenhearted about divorce. It's, it's this severe amputation. It's, it's harming the parties involved. It hurts no matter what. It hurts both parties. It hurts the children. It hurts the friends. You know, you've, you've seen an, enough of these situations yourself where you feel like you're, you have to pick which, which of the spouses you're going to be friends with now. You used to hang out with both of them. Now they're divorced. Who, who's friends with who? The ripple effect is, is severe. Eugene Peterson paraphrases Micah 2.16 this way. This is how Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. I hate divorce, says the God of Israel. God of the angel armies says, I hate the violent dismembering of the one flesh of marriage. There's just a severity to it that God breaks God's heart. And if I could, this is about as much as I'm going to address with verses 33 through 37. But can you see how it makes sense that Jesus follows this little, these, little, these little comments with keep your promises? He talks about oaths, and he says, listen, if you're my follower, you shouldn't need to amp up your promises. You shouldn't need to be like, oh, I'll swear on the Bible. Oh, I'll swear on my life. Oh, I'll swear on the life of my children. Jesus is like, if you're my follower, you don't need to amp up your promises, and they had all these kind of wonky things that they had come up with in, 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 in the Jewish world where it's like the, if the offering, if you, if you uh, made an oath on the offering, it didn't count. But if you made an oath on the altar that, the, that held the offering, it did count. I mean, this is all like you know, crossing your fingers and being like, I'll give you a candy bar. It's like G Jesus is like, listen, if you're my follower, you don't need to amp up your word. Just keep it. 
Your yes should be yes, and your no should be no. That's it. The whole earth is his. So don't say if I, you know, if I make my oath on the altar, it's good, and if I make my oath on this offering, it's bad. It's all God's. So don't, don't, don't try to amp up your promises. Just keep them. Just keep your promises. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And when you don't, especially in marriage, there is incredible harm. It's what, it's what God's talking about in Micah chapter 2. So divorce is a painful amputation. And yet, divorce is permitted. This is what Jesus is getting asked about. Remember, Jesus, the, the first question that, 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 that comes in chapter 19 is they want to know what's the divorce policy. Where, where's the line? We know it's allowed, but where is it allowed? When is it allowed? And it's Jesus who says, before we ever talk about that, I want to talk about the intensity of marriage. I want you to realize that if you understand how intense it is, how significant it is, how beautiful it is, that if you, if you, if you divorce, it's like a painful amputation. But Jesus doesn't deny that divorce is permitted. That the Bible gives at least a few categories for what is permitted in, in um, uh, what biblical grounds for divorce would be. Sexual sin is one. Uh, we find that in Matthew 19 and Matthew 5, our passage today. 1 Corinthians 7 gives the indication that any sort of desertion or abandonment is also grounds for biblical divorce. And there are multiple Bible scholars who include physical abuse in biblical grounds for divorce because it is, it is, a, it is a physical violation of the covenant uh, that you have made with, with your spouse. Some, some scholars say that these, these exemptions were in place in part because in the Old Testament, what, what happened if you, if you cheated on your spouse? You, you were stoned to death. And if you were stoned to death, then your spouse, the living spouse, was clearly free to go be remarried. Well, in the New Testament, we don't stone people anymore. In the year 2023 in America, we don't stone people anymore. And so this idea of saying that the, the, the uh, exemption clauses, the permission of divorce is part, in part in place because we don't kill the offender anymore. And so there's a complication that exists in this culture. I'm glad we don't stone people, just to be on record. I'm glad we don't do that, but it creates a little bit of a complication. So why is divorce permitted? Man, it's permitted because the world is broken. Divorce was never God's design, but because the world is, is broken, divorce is permitted. And I have something shocking for you. I, I, and I, I, in part, I want to say this in part because I want you to watch out for self-righteousness. If you're in this room and you're not divorced, it would be really easy to be thinking about divorced people or something or thinking about the category of divorce and pr being proud of yourself or patting yourself on the back or, or, or whatever. And then if you've gone through divorce, I could understand if you're here and you're feeling like, man, divorce is like a scarlet letter. Um, you know, divorce is like this stain that cannot be washed off. If that's where you're at, you think it's something you could never overcome. I, I got something shocking for you, and I, I want you to know, if, if, you, if you have been divorced, you have incredible company. Some of you are not going to believe this, but it's true. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, God says, I divorced Israel. Jeremiah 3, 8, God says, I gave her a certificate of divorce. God has the audacity to put himself in the category of a divorced person. God associates himself with divorce. 
And so I hope that that's a level of comfort that God actually takes that title or takes that idea and associates it with his own journey, with his own story. Now, you might be sitting out there and saying, okay, yeah, I get you. But like biblical grounds, God divorced Israel because Israel failed. God divorced Israel because Israel cheated on God time and time and time again. They kept running after other gods. And the Old Testament uses the language of adultery, that Israel cheated and cheated and cheated. And so by Jeremiah chapter 3, it says, you know, God gave Israel a certificate of divorce. You'd be like, God had biblical grounds to divorce Israel. I didn't. I just walked out. I just left my wife with the kids, and I just quit. Or I'm the one who cheated. I'm the one who had sex outside of our marriage. I'm the guilty party. So yeah, God associates himself with divorce, but he was the one who was wronged. Well, you're right. God wasn't the one who did the wronging. But if you're the one who's in the wrong, you did not have biblical grounds for your divorce, I would say to you, that should not be ignored. Because divorce is not nothing. And one of the things that we have been learning through the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is actually saying it's kindness to you to show you what's going on. So it's not just murder with your hands, it's anger in your heart. It's not just physical adultery, it's lust in your heart. And for Jesus to, to, to be willing to bring us into the reality of the pervasiveness of sin, it's true for this text too. That as we consider this issue of divorce, if you got divorced without biblical grounds, that's something that you should not ignore. Jesus is saying don't, don't ignore it. And if you think about the invitations we have, it, it's important. Don't ignore it. But do you know that in the lineage of Jesus, a few months ago we were in Matthew chapter 1 and we walked through the lineage of Jesus. Do you know that in the lineage of Jesus, Bathsheba is in the lineage of Jesus? David and Bathsheba, a super complicated story, but a story that is full of guilty parties that is full of unrighteous behavior. And yet God includes that story in the lineage of Jesus, that David and Bathsheba are part of the journey of bringing the Messiah of the world into, this, into the world? I mean, are you kidding me? And the answer is no, we're not kidding you. What, what else could this be except for the fact that God is telling all of us that he loves redeeming the most complicated situations? The, most, the situations that seem most helpless, the worst situations. It's like, it's like he's saying, come to me and try. Like, tr try this out. It's, it, he's saying to you, your divorce does not define you. Your marital status does not define you. I, I'm, I'm somebody who heals and restores. I, I bring things back to life. There's this image in the, in the Old Testament that God brings beauty out of ashes. And so whatever you're, whatever's going on in your story, I don't care what it is. It, couldn't, it might not be related to divorce. You, you are not a hopeless story. This is the message of the work of God in the world, is that he redeems the worst of the situations. You know, one of the reasons why we talk about the gospel as a scandal is because that's exactly what happens. God does these scandalous things where he rescues people that we're like, whoa, 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 God, what are you rescuing them for? They don't deserve to be rescued. And God's like, oh, you don't understand. 
It's all so much worse than you think, Matt. It's all so much worse than you think. And this is what I do. This is, this is what I do. I, I heal and I redeem. All you need is need. You know, just come, come over here. No one who runs to Jesus asking for help is turned away. So let me close with this. What, what are we to do? I want to remind you again that the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving his vision of a flourishing life. So however tender this is for you, however hard this is hitting you right now, I want to remind you that Jesus is saying, this is the good life. And I know you got to trust him. you got to trust him. But he's saying, walk in it. A couple weeks ago, we paused and said, if you have a relationship in your life that's not right, leave the auditorium. Leave right now and go solve it. That's scary. And that's hard. But God's saying, I'm, like, if you'll trust me, like that, that's the way to restoration. That's the way to reconciliation. And so today, if, you're, if your marriage story has, has some complicated factors, Jesus is saying, I know it's scary, but, but this is the way to reconciliation. This is the way to, to restoration. It's the vision of the good life. Jesus loves marriage as God designed it. But I said this a moment ago, you know, some of you are sitting out there. Some singles maybe are sitting there and saying, I'm scared to death. I'm never getting married. There's no way. This sounds ridiculous. It sounds like a bomb that could blow up in my face. I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. Some of you that are married are saying, why did I get married? Why did I get myself into this? You might be saying marriage, you know, man, if it, ta- if it takes that kind of unconditional commitment, it's supposed to be this, you know, the Bible uses this word agape love, self-sacrificing love, lifelong commitment. You know, I know the Bible says that. It, it, it might be weighing heavy, heavy on your heart. You might be saying, um, I see that Jesus loves me like that. I, or I see Jesus loves people like that. Um, but gosh, that, I, I'm not, like, I can't do that. Jesus loves everybody out there. I, you're, yeah, I'm supposed to go do that? Like, I, I, I can't do that. Well, here, here's the advice. You're looking at Jesus from the wrong direction. You're looking at Jesus the wrong way. See, when you look at Jesus and you look at him loving other people, committing himself to other people, serving other people, and you say, man, I could never do what he does. You're right. You can't do what he does. But turn it around. If you look at Jesus from the other direction, what you actually see is Jesus loving you and Jesus dying you for you and Jesus sacrificing himself for you. And if you look at Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you realize that he's hanging there for you then it starts to melt your heart. And what you start to realize is that it's not about, can I do what Jesus did? It's about, have I received what Jesus has done? Have I actually had from him this unconditional love that that far surpasses anything I could ever imagine? You realize that the, the ability to love your spouse or anyone, to do it sacrificially, it comes from the fact that you have already been loved sacrificially in the only way that actually matters sacrificially, wholeheartedly, by Jesus. You realize that before you're ever asked to keep your promises, that you are loved by a God who actually calls himself in the Old Testament, El Shaddai, which means a promise-keeping God. That's what it means. That the God who loves you is the God who keeps his promises. He keeps his oaths. When Jesus says, guys, keep your word, that's coming from somebody who keeps his word. He's the promise-keeper. You realize that marriage is an earthly picture of an eternal and greater covenant that God has made with us. And it's such good news 
and it fills our hearts. And we're reminded that Jesus is not just an example. He's first our Savior. He first comes in and rescues us and gives us hearts that are alive. And then through that new life, we're actually invited to live in light of his good way. I have some more things I want to say, but we are way over time. So <clears throat> we, we come to this table, and when we come to this table, here's, here's what we're invited to realize. We are invited to realize, <clears throat> like if you're here and you recognize that you've not kept your word, you say, man, I'm, I'm not good at keeping my promises. I, there's some people I need to talk to. When you come to this table, you are reminded that you're coming to the table of El Shaddai. You are coming to the table of the God who keeps all of his promises. You are coming to the table of the one who gave his life. And the New Testament tells us that in Jesus, all the promises are yes and amen. That he's our hope. This bread representing his body broken for you. This juice representing his blood spilled for you. This is the good news of the gospel. And if you're here and you realize that, then get up here. Get up here and get the bread and get the cup. And if you are not sure, I would totally understand. If you're here and you're like, man, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever asked Jesus about this. I don't know if I've ever come to him with need and asking for his help. Well, then instead of coming and getting these elements, stay in your chair, and there will be a couple prayers on the screen. And my, invite, and my invitation to you is to read those prayers, and they might just provide for you some language to talk with Jesus about the relationship that he offers to you. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, thanks for this text. We thank you for <clears throat> your design for marriage. As scary as that might sound, as complex as it is, as beautiful and as big as it is, God, we recognize that there's, a, there's just a lot of brokenness, a lot of brokenness in our own stories on this front. So I pray that you would meet us, that you would comfort our hearts, God, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us kindness, kindness towards those around us, God, ki kindness towards ourselves, a, a recognition that you invite us to come and if we do that, boy, you are more ready to forgive us than we are to ask you. So I thank you for inviting us into the good life, for having the courage and the, the kindness to turn the lights on, to show us what's really going on and invite us into your, your good way. We thank you for all your gifts, especially for your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.